0: Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert. Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people. We're in season one, episode 27, and we're going to spend the next two podcasts looking at just a great passage from the Gospel of John, John 10, where we learn so much about the heart of Jesus and how we can relate to him as our good shepherd, the one who watches over us. It's such a comforting and yet challenging passage. It uses just one simple analogy to crack open some of the greatest spiritual truths in the Bible. And so let's just jump right into it. Verse 10 verses of John chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Hey, before we get into the text today, I just want to remind you we're going to be having a special uh, Zoom online gathering for everyone who's a supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi. And that's going to be now Sunday, May 15th at 5 p.m. Sunday, May 15th at 5 p.m. That's for our special uh, Zoom presentation gathering for. Uh, supporters of Gospel Wabi Sabi. If you'd like to become a supporter, we'd love to have you do that, and also then join us on May 15th. If you look in the program notes, you can see how you can become a supporter, and I would very much appreciate that. For the topic that night, we're going to be talking about confrontational Jesus, because of the way that John presents Jesus, always kind of button heads with his, uh, his opponents. And Most people don't really uh, look at Jesus in that kind of confrontational way, and so we're going to talk about that and how that might relate to Christians in contemporary culture. So that'll be our Wabi Sabi Sunday, May 15th, 5 p.m., and I'll send out an email about that to all of our supporters. There are many different names and images used to describe Jesus in the Bible. And one of the most loved and remembered is of Jesus as our shepherd. Now, Throughout the Bible, our relationship with God is often described in those terms as a shepherd with his sheep. Think back to the first words of that great Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I mean, what a powerful, comforting description of the love and care God has for each of us. And what a great description of our sense of safety within that relationship. I think of Psalm 95, starting with verse 6. It says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Part of our worship is to recognize the special relationship we have with God as his sheep, the ones. Who are in his care? Isaiah forty eleven describes the heart of God this way: He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. On an emotional level, God connects with us with the same tenderness as a shepherd with his precious lambs. Even our rebellion against God is described in sheep terminology. Isaiah fifty three six. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Now, most of us, honestly, we don't know much about sheep. We may have seen them on TV or got up close at a petting zoo. That's when they're all cleaned up, so cute with all that nice fluffy wool. That is not what sheep look like in the wild. That is not their natural state. Normally, they're out in the fields. Their wool is matted with dirt and dung. Like most livestock, they stink. They're kind of filthy just all the time. They are not cute and cuddly in the wild. But sheep were a common daily fixture in biblical times, and shepherds played a unique role in ancient Israel. The the sheep of Israel's flocks were not produced primarily for food like they are in modern Europe or the UK, or how they are bred. uh, Back then, they were bred mainly to provide wool, as they do still today in Africa and the Middle East. There sure was there was an occasional sacrifice, but most sheep in Israel, they were with their shepherd for a very long time. And there developed a very personal relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. The sheep were given names, brown foot, bent ear, firstborn. The whole life of the flock was wrapped around the care given by the shepherd. He provided for them, provided them with food and water, protection, direction, especially direction because sheep are incredibly dumb There are no quick thinkers in that herd. They easily wander off and get lost while grazing. They follow a smell and then they forget where they are and forget how to get back. Most sheep wouldn't survive very long in the wild on their own. They are easily killed off by predators. Everything for their lives comes from the shepherd. There were no sheep dogs for Palestinian shepherds. Their flocks were guided by the voice of the shepherd. His voice or his special whistle or song or flute note The sheep were trained to follow some special sound from their earliest days. You know, Jesus liked to use this relationship in his parables about God, like Luke 15, the parable of that one lost sheep. And you know the story. God is like a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep safely in the pen and goes out after that one lost sheep. It's a parable about how much God passionately loves us. Well, John 10 presents us with three different little vignettes about shepherds and sheep. Verses 1 through 6 describe a communal sheepfold, one where everyone in the town brought their sheep to a pen, a large pen in town, so it was very secure. One door with a lock always guarded. That was the winter fold. That's what they did with their sheep in the winter. And in the spring, how could they separate out all these various flocks that had intermingled all winter long? They had no brands. There were no marks put on them. Well, each shepherd would just give his distinctive call. and That would signal his sheep. The sheep would only go with that familiar voice or tune. So the gatekeeper and the sheep would only respond to the voice or call of the true shepherd, which is exactly the point Jesus was making in verses 1 through 6. Verse 3, the the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought them all out on his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So those who are Jesus' sheep respond to his voice and not the call of the other religious teachers, whom he labeled as thieves and robbers. But that goes over their heads, and they don't realize Jesus has just insulted them once again. So Jesus offers them another parable. He says, I'm the door. I'm the gate. Now Jesus starts talking about a different sheepfold than the one in verses 1 through 6. Now he's referring to the summer, spring-summer sheepfold, where they would go out into the hills for pasture, and they would stay out there in the wilderness for many months at a time. The wealthier shepherds had these semi-permanent structures built of stone or wood up in the hills where they could guard their flocks at night. The poorer shepherds, they would have to build temporary sheepfolds made from those thick thorn branches that you see in the Middle East. And the purpose of these sheepfolds was twofold, keep the predators out and keep the sheep from wandering away. These sheepfolds had only one opening, and that's where the shepherd slept, right there in the doorway. His body literally became the door. Anything that goes in or out has got to go right over him first. That's why most Judean shepherds were very light sleepers. Heavy sleepers went out of business in a hurry, either because of lost, killed, or stolen sheep. Uh, And Maybe that could be the origin of the idea of counting sheep to fall asleep. I don't know. So Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved and go in and go out and find green pasture. Here's another one of Jesus's famous seven I am statements. I am the door. Through me, people find access to the Father. It's a great claim. But do you really believe it? It's very exclusive, like many other of Jesus's statements in this gospel, Jesus did not fall into the type of thinking that would say, you go your way and I'll go mine and we'll all meet in heaven. When people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, that means they've never really read or understood what Jesus actually taught. When you believe, what you believe did and does matter to Jesus. When Jesus talked about robbers and thieves, he's actually referring to all the other religious teachers of his day who taught a different way to God. There were a tremendous number of phony messiahs and cults and people who thought they knew the truth in Jesus's day. And nothing has changed really in that regard. We, uh, even today, spiritual experts are a dime a dozen. But Jesus calls them all liars, unless they point people to himself, to Jesus. I am the one, he says. I am the one and only door. Listen to Jesus in this passage. Through me, you have a new view of God. All the warped ideas people have about God can be cleared up if you come through the proper door. If you think God is cold, distant, uncaring, then you haven't met the real Jesus. If you think of a God who is impressed by how good you are, then you haven't really met the real Jesus. If you think of a God who's hostile and cruel, then you haven't met Jesus. If you think of a God who has given up on you, a God who has written you off then you haven't met Jesus at all. God is revealed perfectly and beautifully in Jesus Christ. And Look at Jesus and see what kind of God we have. You can't help but fall in love with him. can't help but want to have his love change your life. And what happens when a person enters by that gate, that door? Well, Jesus says a couple of things. First, they're saved. Not such a beautiful word in scripture, but unfortunately, it doesn't sound like a beautiful word to modern ears. In many cases, it's an unacceptable word. If you say, are you saved? That's an emotionally charged phrase that is associated with high pressure, highly emotional sales presentations of the gospel. Bible thumping, street corner preaching. So it's a a phrase. If you say, are you saved? It can kind of turn people off because it has been used in such an uncareful and reactionary way. It's a shame that we have to back off that terminology because it carries with it too much baggage. The term simply involves that we need help. We need saving. And that's hard for many folks to admit, especially if you're counting on self-salvation or your own good works to get you into heaven. Now, we all want to have a high view of humanity as those made in the image of God. There's a lot we can accomplish in our humanness. But morally, we haven't really gained any ground. We haven't gained one inch of ground since the beginning of time. At some point, we do have to admit our inner depravity and our need for forgiveness and a Savior. If we are unable to admit, that's when we're in trouble. Saved. When one of my nieces was about three years old, she was being watched by a babysitter while sitting on the dock of our family summer cottage in Vermont. The sitter looked away for a second, and my niece just simply walked off the end of the dock and fell into the lake. The sitter was frantic because she <clears throat> excuse me, heard the splash, but didn't see the exact spot where my niece went in. Now, thankfully, the guy on the next dock saw the whole thing and knew exactly where she was. He jumped in, found her sitting on the bottom of the lake like nothing was wrong. They got her up and on the dock, and she said, you know, I saw the fishies. She didn't even know she needed saving. She couldn't save herself. Someone needed to come to her, come for her, to rescue her, and she was saved. That's exactly the same with us and Jesus. Save us. Save me. We may not even know we need to be saved, but we are in desperate need of a Savior. And so to be saved is a beautiful word and a powerful biblical principle. There's not a person on the planet who doesn't need to be saved by the work of Jesus. He has rescued us from the power of sin and death. That's the first thing that happens when we turn to him. We are saved. Second, we go in and out. Now, there's a certain feel to these words, this phrase in and out. It was a familiar phrase to the Hebrews because they were an oppressed people. They had been conquered by other nations for around 800 years, and their freedoms had been highly restricted all that time. They were not able to come and go unmolested without fear of something bad would happen to them. And the ability to come and go unmolested was something that they actually dreamed of. Think of how you feel (coughs) when you go through security at the airport. Our freedom to come and go has been restricted because of fears of terrorism, and now even more so with the fear of COVID. This inability to come and go as we please, it really does cast a shadow over how we live. For an oppressed people... Being able to go in and out means security. To be able to go in and out means that with Christ, there's a tremendous sense of security and freedom. Plus, the Hebrew expression uh, uses this kind of opposition all the time. In and out, come and go, night and day. Basically, when opposites are used, it's a way of saying all the time. All the time. Whenever you want, whatever situation you're in, no matter what, God's security is there with you. All the time. Psalm 121, verse 7. The Lord will keep watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Do you hear that strong Hebrew idea over and over again? Going out and coming in, that's security. The sounds of the world around us are all very ominous. Headlines and alerts and inflation and price hikes. And Thon and I decided we could balance our household budget pretty easily We just have to go on a two-year fast. Jesus says we can go in and out. There's no way you or I can control the future. There's only thing that we can hold on to, and that's the Lord, that he will keep our coming and going both now and forevermore. Somehow he's got the whole world in his hands. So from God's point of view, are things falling apart or are they all coming together? Psalm 23 again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 42.16 I will lead the blind by the ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. (coughs) Third thing, we will find pastures. We will have the capacity to quietly trust. Think of the rest, the peace, the meaningful life that comes with this idea of pasture. There are plenty of things that can come and go that hit us and might threaten that sense of peace. But one of the biggest things most people do today is simply rest. Most families are a pooped group. We need rest, like years of rest. The routine that comes our way has got to change. In the midst of all the turmoil, we do need to experience the rest of Christ. Jesus describes this as someone who has decided to enter by the door. Decided. Now think of that. Decided to make the whole thing personal. When you lean into Jesus, you can't help but feel his sense of rest. Jesus moved with exquisite leisure. In the three years of his life described by the Gospels, you never see him in a hurry. You never see him rushed or disheveled or overextended. Somehow, he carried within himself a sense of rest, even as he accomplished our salvation. If you enter by his door, you will find rest. Verse 10 is the climax for this section. I've come that you might have life more abundantly. It's In all its fullness. The Greek phrase here is literally to discover a surplus of life. Isn't that a great phrase? A surplus of life. Eternal life that goes on and on. An eternity with God that begins right now and goes on and on. A beginning, but no ending. Once we are in touch with this, we can draw from this well for our lives now. God has an inexhaustible supply of life. We can draw on it anytime. I'm finally learning how to do all my banking with the app on my phone. I can check my balances and see what's left in the account. Too often I have to worry about, you know, living out of debt, not of abundance. Wouldn't it be great if you had no limits on your bank account? You can make payments after payment, never worry, online shopping, whatever, an exhaustless account. What are you going to do to need more of God's strength this week? Patience, strength, wisdom. Maybe you'll need abundant love. Then we've got to ask for it. Say, Lord, I need some more love this week because I can't stand this person. Draw on God's patience. Draw on God's reserves, his courage. Or the situations where you need to face at work or home. And just pray and say, ask him because he'll give it. Forgiveness. There is no upper limit on forgiveness. Jesus has life with no limit. A surplus of forgiveness or power or patience. All of that is yours. Who but Jesus could say such things? I am the door. There's an old fable called The Lady or the Tiger. It's a story about a man sentenced to unusual punishment for having a romance with the evil king's beloved daughter. The man is taken to the public arena where he faces two doors. Behind one door is a hungry tiger who's going to tear him to shreds. Behind the other door is a beautiful woman with whom he will will have to marry. I guess this was probably the origin of the game show. You know, the price is right. You know, what do we have behind door number one? Well, he has two doors to choose from, as we do. And when it comes down to having a relationship with God, there are really only two doors, not hundreds of doors. We can boil all the world's religions down into one of these two doors. Door one is the door of human achievement. That's where I count on my works to get me into heaven, my acts of atonement, my charity, my religious rituals. My devotion, me, 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 I, 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 my intellect, my love, my sacrifices, my generosity, my religious zeal, my devotion, it all boils down to me. But Jesus tells us there is another door, the door of his divine accomplishment. Salvation is found through Jesus alone. It is wrapped up in what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price that we couldn't possibly pay. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus did it all, and there's nothing more we can add. All we do is accept the gift. But that is so hard because it means we must lay aside our human pride. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out in safety. Do you recognize that voice? Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's a great day to listen for the voice of the shepherd, the one who is the door, to open that door, to take that gift, and to follow where he leads you in and out, to find salvation, find security, find excitement and meaning and purpose, and experience his peace. I hope you know the great shepherd of the sheep. Have a great week.